I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Will Republicans retake the Senate in 2014? What will happen in the House? What's the latest in 2016 presidential politics? People who want to stay ahead of the curve in politics turn to our good friends at the Cook Political Report for answers. For more than 30 years, Charlie Cook and his team have nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News' Bob Schieffer calls the report, quote, the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver says few have, quote, a longer track record of success. If you make it your business to know politics, you need to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Head over to cookpolitical.com slash political wire. That's cookpolitical.com slash political wire to sign up today. And now to our conversation with key Senate battles in multiple states and both parties looking to build 2016 momentum. For midterms this year, the old line is true. Every vote will count. So here's some bad news for candidates who might be depending on young voters for victory. Don't count on it. A prediction of low voter turnout is just one finding from the always revealing millennials poll from Harvard's Institute of Politics at the Kennedy School of Government. Why might millennials stay away? What's their view of Obama? And who's more enthusiastic, young Republicans or Democrats? The results might surprise you, which is why John Della Volpe is here to help us understand. John is the Institute of Politics Director of Polling, where he oversaw the Millennial Survey. He's also founder and CEO of Social Sphere, where he helps direct polling for Politico, among other duties. And finally, he's an Eisenhower Fellow and father of three millennials, so we know he knows what he's talking about. John, thanks for joining me. Of you know, of all the honors you have, besides Dad, of course, <laughs> my my favorite is that you were named a future legend of marketing by the Ad Club of Boston. <laughs> I'm not sure how one predicts a future legend, but um, I, I feel like should I be saving your drawings from cocktail napkins or something? <laughs> I, I all I could tell you, Chris, thanks so much for having me. And uh, that was quite an honor. I actually thought that when I, when I was told that I was going to receive this award, I thought my dues were late. And I was being scolded, but they actually told me the future life. That's how unexpected it was well, a year ago. It, um, it's a heck but, of an incentive to keep paying dues, though, right? I mean, you can't you really it. be – I mean, a future legend who doesn't pay his dues. <laughs> and it made me think, you know, it, I, which I shouldn't say with a, with a Boston fellow, but, you know, it's like you know, you're like the, the Derek Jeter of, of this whole thing. But, but for a Boston guy, I guess we can't really go that direction. We won't go there right now. We won't go. No, no, no. Uh, anyhow, I'm a, I'm a Cubs guy myself. Um, so, so let's turn to something uh, actually relevant. And, and first, Social Sphere, where your founder and CEO. I, I loved the description of it. The, you sit at the intersection of people, technology, and ideas at the metaphorical space where concepts collide with modern technologies to create real connections, approachable and effective tools, and instant insight. Explain that to me. Um, thanks so much for. for- for reading our website so carefully, Chris. Yeah, it, um, it, it's fa- it was a, it's an interesting write-up. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to understand know, it. And we started the company about five or six years ago because you know after twenty or so years um, as a public opinion researcher and as a pollster at Harvard Institute of Politics and other places, you know I realized that to truly understand public opinion, especially with emerging technologies and emerging generations. 
generation who doesn't even have a landline telephone anymore, that we needed to do more, and we needed not only to ask what people think, but observe what they, what they think and what they do online. So that was the concept of social sphere, to essentially apply some of the same social science rigor to understanding influence in the way in which people think and um, create opinions online. So what we were able to do was to develop a series of algorithms that help us understand key trends in any language, on any subject, in any neighborhood around the world. And it's a great complement to the more traditional public opinion research that we also do on behalf of our clients. You know, you're totally right about the whether one owns a landline or not. I, I have an unproven uh, theory that you can, you know, you're not supposed to ask one's age, but if you really want to make a guess if somebody's over or under a certain age, just ask them if they have a landline. And, and if the answer is yes, which it is for me, then right. you know that they are of a certain age. It's, uh, you know, not scientific, can't prove it out, but, uh, um, you know, it, it works for me in conversation. It, it, it definitely works. And then the second question would be, when was the last time we picked it up at home between 5 o'clock and 9 o'clock at night? Well, luckily... Both yeah. do their job, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And luckily, uh, I rate young on that one. I, I, don't, pick up, I don't pick up the phone. So, so let's turn to the millennial poll that, that you did, uh, that you ran at uh, the Institute of Politics at uh, the Kennedy School of Government. First, for, outline the parameters for me. How did you define millennial? How did you contact them? When did you contact them? And, and what issues were you out to understand? Great. Well, the, um, I'll just, if it's okay, I'll start from, from the beginning. This semester, just a few weeks ago, um, we completed our 25th survey. And the um, idea is today we're, we're sampling millennials um, because I define millennials, most people do, young people born between 1980 and 2000. But for this survey, um, we're only interviewing young Americans between 18 and 29 years old. So it's not the entire millennial generation to be, you know, to be specific. We're really kind of interested in, um, in the kind of the cohort, 18 to 29 year olds who play an important role in elections. And the, in the, in the program and the, and the project was actually, um, not started or not inspired by, by me. It was inspired by two 19 year old sophomores at Harvard back in 2000. They were concerned with a relatively simple problem which is why are so many young people involved in community service on campuses and in high schools around the country, but so few people seem interested in voting to elect president, members of Congress, governor, et cetera. Where's the disconnect? That's how the program started, again, 25 semesters ago, um, and we continue to survey members of this generation since then. We started using college telephone directories, only looking at college students, and today, um, we have a terrific partnership with a company called GFK, and we're able to randomly, through a probability-based sample, select people um, based on kind of where they live and their address, and then drive people to an online survey tool where they conduct the survey at the time of their choosing um, via, via the Internet. Excellent. So the the first and, and maybe most major, but the first finding that, that you, you, you got was low expected participation for the midterm elections. Um, less than one in four young Americans say they will definitely be, definitely be voting. And, and interestingly, this was a big drop from just five months ago. I think you showed an 11 percentage point drop from just five months ago on this. Um, what happened? Well, I think the answer is not much has happened, you know, um, which is why we see so much discontent. You know, to put this into perspective, 
Um, as you noted, we have 34 percent of 18 to 29 year olds say they'll definitely vote when we conducted the, um, the survey in November. And that wasn't a good time for our government. We had just come out of a, out of a shutdown. The um, healthcare.gov Obamacare website was in the earlier stages, not doing particularly well. Overall, there was a lot of negativity um, that we picked up a few months ago. And in the last survey that was completed in April, we saw actually less interest, less participation, and trust in almost every single institution that we track had been down significantly in the last year. Yeah, I want so, to ask you. I want to ask you about the trust thing because really that that gets to the core of of concern from from certainly from my point of view. But but on your answer, not much. You know what's happened and, and the not much is that most impactful? I mean, for, for, for millennials, what matters more? Something happening, you know, directionally, even if it's maybe, you know, even if maybe they don't think it's the greatest thing ever, or the lack of action? It, it, you know, does, do they just want to see something, anything happening? Or does it kind of have to be happening and effective for them to be engaged? I think that's a, that's a great question. Young people, here, here's a story. Young people care deeply about their community and about their country. And they're actually volunteering in, you know, in significant um, hours, number of hours uh, across America in almost every city and town that I visit, regardless of what segment of the demographic um, pool that we're talking to. Young people care deeply and, and they're doing that engaging through community service. And I think they want to see the same thing from government, um, that you know, there is broad agreement on what the three or four significant issues are facing this generation, facing America, the economy, student debt, overall debt in general, education, big issues. And I don't believe that young people today believe Washington is listening to them, that they want to be more engaged in the process than, they're, than they currently are. So I don't want to say that all young people believe in an activist government, but I do believe they're seeking ways to be engaged, and I think they would like to see more engagement and more action in Washington, D.C., and capitals around the country. And maybe, and maybe this is what you're saying. I mean, it certainly feels like it connects directly to part of the culture of this generation, of the millennial generation. I mean, they, they are, they're much more directly engaged, I mean, from, from you know, social networks um, to other forms of, of interaction. The, the middle person has been removed. And I guess it doesn't, maybe, you know, as I'm, I'm listening to you, it seems to make sense that they would have less faith, less trust in, you know, somebody else getting something done, as opposed to just picking up the, the, the you know, the hammer, the, the nail, the rake, the shovel, and going out and doing the work themselves. You're exactly. And that was our, that you're exactly right. That was essentially kind of the first significant finding back from 2000, that when we tried to understand the disconnect between voting and service, because at that point, you know, three and five college students were engaged in a regular form of community service because it was more tangible, that it was easier and more tangible to teach somebody how to read or to teach a math problem or use your analogy to pick up a hammer or build a house than it would be to deal with issues related to poverty or standards in education, et cetera, which in their minds could take a generation to solve, if never. You know, I, I don't want to jump to the end of this conversation, uh, although, you know, we could get done with this whole thing really quick if uh, you have some place to go. Yeah, we could talk about the Red Sox. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah there, there we'd have, uh, well, not too much to say, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but as, as I think about for politicians, I mean, 
how do you, you know how do you engage that? I mean, it, the whole thing, the whole challenge for a politician, the whole ask is, trust me, you know, I'm here in Washington or I'm here in the state capitol. I'm going to go do good. Put your trust in me. And, and that, that ask almost at its core is directly counter to what you're describing millennials as wanting to do, which is to say, no, 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 trust you. You know, maybe, sure, we can talk about that. But I trust me. I'm going to go get it done. For a politician or a public official, how do you, you know, how do you kind of square that? And, and it almost is a game changer. I would think. What's what's interesting and sometimes sad about this conversation is that politicians typically figure it out and campaigns figure it out during kind of the, the even years. You know, when they're getting elected, um, campaigns and elected officials and politicians find plenty of ways to engage young people, right? They To enroll them as volunteers and have them knocking on doors, you know, across the county, across the state, across the country. Um, I learned an important lesson um, that was the foundation of the philosophy around social sphere, which we talked about a moment ago. Um, and it was a lesson that I learned in watching and observing Deval Patrick, our governor here in Massachusetts, of, of, of which um, in many ways laid the strategic foundation of the Obama campaign. Governor Patrick did three things when he went from, from 1% to winning uh, the Democratic primary and then the governorship without any TV commercials. He went from third place to first place without a TV commercial. Um, instead, what he did was he identified the most passionate, most influential people um, in the state who wanted a voice. In that case, it was younger people, it was independents, it was people who didn't always vote in Democrat primaries. He identified them, he empowered them, he challenged them, he said it wasn't sufficient for you to vote, to write me a check. If you care about making a community better, you need to help me think about this campaign, give me your ideas, come to work with me. And then he actually asked them to do something. He asked them to get up off the couch and to organize or to kind of, uh, you know, work in other ways in, in the government and the community. Identified, empowered, and asked for more. Every single elected official in America could be doing the same thing, and I guarantee you, you would have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of young people heeding that call and going to work uh, to make their community and ultimately their government and the country better. Well, if folks are smart, the sound you hear now is politicians and public officials writing that down and taking notes on it because that's a, a great prescription um, for success. John, I, I want to ask you so much more. I want to ask you about that trust question. Uh, I want to ask you about uh, the views on income gap. I also want to ask you about a recent poll that uh, you did, just came out uh, the other day for Politico. But first, I want to ask our listeners kindly for their help with an important survey we're running at Political Wire. As you know, the Political Wire podcast is free for download. Please help us keep it stay free for download by completing a short anonymous survey. It'll take no more than five minutes. Your answers will help match our show with advertisers that best fit the sensibilities of our podcast and listeners like you. Now, any listener who completes the survey will be entered in an ongoing monthly raffle to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Of course, we promise not to share or sell your email address, and we won't send you an email unless you win. But we really appreciate every one of our listeners, and we really would appreciate your help. Please go to www.podsurvey.com slash wire. That's www.podsurvey.com slash wire to take our survey and get a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. We thank you again for your support.
John, for me, probably the biggest headline, if not the most depressing, was around trust from your millennial poll. I happen to feel, and, and I think you agree, judging from you know the things you're saying, that, that virtually nothing is more important to our government, society, businesses, relationships than trust, yet your numbers show that that's falling hard among millennials. Um, you know, it's, it's dissipated, you wrote, uh, even compared to last year's historically low numbers. Um, for example, and you named some of these institutions in the last 12 months, uh, you found trust in the president down 39 to 32 um, percent, trust in the U.S. military down 54 to 47, the Supreme Court 40 to 36. Before we kind of get into each of those and, and talk about it in terms of, uh, you know, political standing, et cetera, overall, wh what's the why? Over, overall, um, We've seen a, just a consistent, a consistent drop of, of a couple of points in the overall kind of lack of lack of trust in every single institution, essentially that we've measured around government, not just on government as well as media as well. And we have this opportunity. We, you know, these are numbers that we began to see in 2000. And um, I say often that to the extent there there could be a silver lining with 9/11, the only silver lining that I could see was what I would call a political awakening or even a reawakening of young people in this country. They cared. We had, we had low levels of trust in 2000 and the early days of 2001, and that changed pretty quickly when young people and all Americans could have rallied around the flag, banded together as Americans. Um, and we saw you know, several years of increased participation, increased levels of trust, not on every institution, but on many institutions. In 2004, 2006, 2008, we saw levels of uh, political participation increasing. And unfortunately, we've, it's, most of the news has been negative since then, since, since essentially 2009, 2010. And, and I'd argue that um, if you want in the private sector, if you want um, your company to be, uh, to be relevant to young people, they need to like you you know, before they buy something from you. And the same thing in government. Young people need to respect government before they participate in it. And what did you find um, in terms of, you know, Republican versus uh, Democrat in terms of the trust question? We saw actually when, it, when, it, when you look at the presidency generally, um, we saw that Democrats and independents were more likely to lose trust in the presidency generally over the last year. Whereas uh, in the case of the military, as an example, the only time that we've tracked um, levels of trust with the military below 50%, we saw a level decrease across each of the three major kind of political types, Democrats, Republicans, and independents. So unfortunately, it's something that we see consistently across the board, but Democrats especially when it comes to uh, the presidency in general. And in terms of that, around Obama and around Democrats and independents, for, for the Republicans, were they was their trust in Obama already so low that there just wasn't too much further to drop? Was that what you? And so, any change is going to come in terms of Democrats and independents. Exactly. When, you, when you're moving seven points, I don't have a number off the top of my head, but I think trust among Republicans in the presidency generally was already in the. Probably in the mid-teens, I, yeah. I seem to remember it was like thirteen to eighteen percent. Yeah, so. yeah, that's that. That's exactly right. But and and I guess then as you're starting to think about, um, you know, rallying troops around midterms. 
bad news then for the Democrats if if they you know if if they're losing the core. And obviously, this is at the presidential level, and and we'll talk in a moment about the Politico poll that you, that you did, which really showed you know we may be, we maybe ought to be talking less about national polling and more about you know each race by race in, in terms of you know where where the support's going to come from. But but. If the Democrats are losing that support at the presidential level, that's got to cause some problems around the thinking for the midterm elections. Yeah, you know, it absolutely has to. You know, when we think about the impact, the, the, the power of young people, I would argue today that Hillary Clinton would be president today if not for young people in Iowa. You know, in Iowa, and we look at the Iowa caucus of 2008, three times as many people under 30 participated, I believe, than ever before. And President then Senator Obama won that vote 55 to about 9%. I think Hillary had about 9%. Um, and Obama lost everybody over the age of 30. So young people have already changed um, the face of that election, the face of the country before. Um, there are many other examples where we can talk about that, but it's hard work. You need to continue to engage young people. And what we're seeing is a little bit of a schism between the older young, older millennials who came of age during 08 and Obama campaign and the younger ones who are coming up of age now post Obama during the recession, those sorts of things. There are just less Democrats to even begin with. It's going to take more work, not less work, um, to kind of engage them, especially in the midterm election. And on the Hillary question, which you just raised, the numbers show uh, it's not bad to be Hillary right now, is it? It's not bad. She has a 52% favorable number, 15% very favorable, 37% somewhat favorable. Those numbers aren't off the charts, but I, I would argue, is there any elected official, certainly one with the history that Hillary Clinton has had over the last 20 years with better numbers today. Um, so she's in a solid, she's in a solid position kind of to build from her, her unfavorable rating is, is 42%. Yeah, which um, seems, feels, that feels pretty high, obviously. 25%, 23%, um, somewhat unfavorable with one in five saying very unfavorable. But, um, I, like I said, I'd argue, is there somebody who's in a better position today um, than she is, even though it's, again, not off the charts? And just kind of to finish off, going back on this trust question, because, you know, it, when you think about, you know, how are we going to move things forward as a country, the trust in our institutions, like it or not, we, you know, we, we have these institutions, you have the military. And, and as you pointed out, if you're a company today, the, the, the question of trust for consumers is key. What can institutions start doing to rebuild that? Does it, is, is it all about actions? Do they need to reduce in size? Do they need to maybe somehow become more, you know, manageable parts because is, is big bad these days and, and trust will be greater? Uh, maybe the smaller you are. I mean, how, how do we start to really address um, the question of rebuilding trust in, in our institutions? Well, I think the first thing I would argue is to is to ask yourself the question in terms of are you responsive you know young people are uh, we talked about kind of they they came of age in a in a in a in a fundamentally different way than other generations and most of those folks in those other generations whether they're like me or gen xer or, or baby boomer or older came of age when it was essentially kind of top-down levels of communication. And millennials today seek um, ways to kind of engage themselves and be responsive and be listened to, et cetera. So I would think, and there are some examples of this throughout government, some of which we've worked on in the social sphere, the idea of kind of tapping the people who care, who, who care most about you for ideas, for inspiration, for energy, um, having a dialogue, whether it's online, offline, town halls, 
um, crowdsourcing, et cetera, is one way, I'd argue, to very quickly modernize an institution. You can do it on the inside with the thousands of bureaucrats who work kind of within your department or agency. You can do it on the outside with the tens of thousands of stakeholders as well. And then it just takes one kind of NSA listening scandal, uh, you know, or one, uh, you know, political office scandal, and and how much of that, you know, how how much damage can one type of scandal like that cause? It can do a lot of damage, especially if there's not a reservoir of goodwill. You know, so kind of the more trust, uh, kind of a higher level of trust and the track record that's been designed um, and created um, can prevent you know, scandals from taking, spinning out of, out of control. You know, it wasn't just Katrina um, that impacted the Bush administration in a negative way. It was Katrina on top of, you know, a war that young people didn't think we ought to be fighting in Iraq, Afghanistan to begin with. It was a combination of those two things. It wasn't just one event. So it's something that, you know, I think institutions of all kinds, public and private sector, need to work on every single day. And the lesson is, Young people want to engage. They want to be engaged. They somehow just need to be asked. One other area that you looked at that, that I think also goes to one's trust in society and one's trust in, in institutions is the income gap. And, and you found that uh, a, a large number, 64% of millennials overall, believe um, that the gap between uh, the rich and everyone else in America, your words, the report's words, is greater today than when they were born. But then there's a split among Democrat, young Democrats and young Republicans in terms of uh, whom to blame. Break, break that down for me. Um, yeah, a couple of different things. One of one of the, the first difference I like, I like just to mention is the difference between Democrats and Republicans in terms of how big of a problem this is. As you said, almost everybody agrees that's happening, but Democrats are significantly more likely to believe it's a major problem than um, than than Republicans are. Kind of number one. And then um, when we talk about kind of who's to blame, we see that Republicans are actually more likely to blame their own party than Democrats are to their own party. So Republicans understand it's an issue. They're willing to take some responsibility as, as, uh, as Republicans in terms of why we got there. Um, but income inequality, student debt, these are the, the economic issues of our day. And, um, and I, I think this is an opportunity for um, men and women from either side of the aisle to begin to build a relationship with young people if they begin to significantly kind of attack each of these two issues. So, so young Republicans are willing to hold Republicans responsible, and so are young Democrats. Absolutely. <laughs> so they, they, they agree on that part. Um, <laughs> so just kind of o- overall, before I, I shift quickly to uh, uh, a question or two about the Politico poll that, that you recently released, were you, res- were you surprised by these results? I mean, you've done this for uh, a couple of years. Um, were you surprised at the drop-in um, optimism, and maybe that's my word, not yours, so, so if that's not right, please correct it. But, but how, you know, did, did the results surprise you? Yes and no. I mean, we've seen, you know, this is a trend line that we've seen since 2009, 2010. You know, I wasn't surprised when we actually had kind of fewer young people participate in the 2012 presidential election than 2008, especially in the states that were not competitive. So the, the overall kind of lack of, of, of participation isn't surprising. What is surprising would, would be that 11-point drop that we noticed just in the last five or six months. So the degree to which um, people are tuning out of politics 
I suppose is is uh, is somewhat surprising. And hopefully it turns around. This is just you know a snapshot in time in terms of people likely to vote. And hopefully we can turn this around over the next several months. You know, this is the largest generation um, in the history of America and the history of the world. And um, having them become active participants in Every aspect of society is going to be important, especially in government. Isn't that fascinating? The largest generation at the time when arguably some of the largest changes in terms of uh, society, connectivity, how to connect, how to engage, you know, individual ability to, 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 you know, make a difference and impact, you know, the biggest generation coming along at the times of some of the greatest change. That's quite an intersection, huh? It is. And, and, and at a time when... Um, Government needs new bodies. They literally need new bodies. We just look at the demographics of the number of, of, of people who are, who are becoming, you know, uh, retirement eligible through the baby boomers. So we've got several different kind of factors happening at once. The good news is young people, you know, will, will participate. Um, in making the country better. Um, but I'd argue that you need people participating not just on the outside like they're doing now, but on the outside as well as the inside. John, changing gears quickly, just a a question or two. You recently released a very interesting poll for Politico. The finding there, quote, in congressional districts and states where the midterm elections will actually be decided, likely voters said they would prefer to vote for a Republican over a Democrat by seven points, 41 percent to 34 percent. Not great news for Democrats, it doesn't sound like. No, and that mirrors, I think, a lot of the level, the kind of the congressional level and, and the Senate by Senate, uh, you know, elections uh, polling as well. But again, this is kind of a, you know, when you look at what we saw in the IOP work, young people less likely to participate. Those who are um, likely to participate, they look more Republican than Democrat. We see the same thing echoed in this survey, which is a very different kind of survey, but we see the same overall themes. Any thoughts as you think about money and politics, any thoughts as to how parties, so if, if the national isn't going to matter quite as much and you really got to get down to the, you know, the individual Senate race or the, you know, even maybe the individual House race or governor's race, any thoughts as to how parties or PACs should react to this or are reacting to this, that this may be outside of kind of areas that you actively think about, but, but maybe you're seeing some, uh, some data out there. Yeah, I think, you know, I think there's a major enthusiasm problem on the left, um, especially with members of kind of the African-American, Hispanic, Latino community. So I think, you know, political um, organizations ought to be really, really thinking about ways to kind of inspire and empower and organize members of that community. And in terms of, you know, this is a unique opportunity for Republicans don't have very often, especially young Republicans, to really make their voice heard. Um, in, in terms of uh, the, the impact they'll have in this election. Too often, too often, I think Republicans still write off um, members of this generation. That, that doesn't necessarily need to be the case, especially in some, some targeted swing, contested you know, House and, 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 and Senate races. Fascinating insights about uh, the largest generation and the newest generation. I guess there's uh, one one following quickly on their heels, so you'll you'll stay in business for a while longer. You'll have to uh, you'll have to investigate the next one up uh, very soon, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, John Delavolpe is uh, the director of polling at the Institute of Politics at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. He's also founder and CEO of Social Sphere. You can follow him on Twitter at Della Volpe. Uh, John, thank you so much for making the time. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations.